Hey strangers, welcome to another episode of The Strange Sessions. As always, I am Kurt and I am joined once again by my faithful partner. She's been my A1 since day one, Krista. <laughs> A1 since day A1 one. A1 since day one. You always come up with something new. I love it. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Doing okay. Sweet. Other than my pounding headache I have right yeah. now. Yeah. Bummer. But just took some meds. It's a barometric, barometric pressure. I don't know. I get headaches. I really from thought that. that we were done with hot and humid, and then all of a yeah. sudden, nope. Well, I think the high today is like 72. That's still hot. <laughs> I want 55. <laughs> my ideal temperature, my ideal day is 55 and sunny. Mm. That is I'll my, take 65 and sunny. Yeah, it's getting a little warm. <laughs> getting a little warm. Uh, gonna do shout outs to our newest strangers. And those are Annie Reed, Sydney Rouge or Rouge. I'm not sure. Sorry about that. Kayla Mueller. Ugh, I work over. with her. Start Very over. exciting. Is it Welcome, Mueller? Kayla. I don't know if it's Mueller, Mueller or Miller. Or Miller. Probably Miller. <laughs> I meant to clear that up with her first, but Kayla, welcome to the strangers. Yeah, it's probably Miller. I never know. Yeah, I don't because know. Because I know people like that that are Mueller and I know people like that that are Miller. Yeah, agreed. Jared Gwynn, Jordan Dunn, Shauna Bree Paolo. Natalie Retallick, who actually was in the group, and then <laughs> Facebook, for some reason, determined she was a bot, so yeah. like deleted her account or whatever. And then she rejoined. And then she rejoined. <laughs> uh, Amber, I think you work with Amber her, Amber Winter, yes. yes. Amber Winter and Caleb Hutchins, yeah, who Amber, just joined yesterday. I know Amber really well. We work together a lot. So um, thank you guys so much for joining the strangers. It's always welcome. awesome to yes. see new people. And we do have housekeeping stuff. Mm-hmm. You had some weird things happen. Mm-hmm. Oh, before I forget, uh, my friend Wendy at work, this isn't her thing, but she listened to the podcast because she hears me talk about it. Yeah. And she said she really liked it. And I said, do you have any criticisms? And she said two things that she can think of. Okay. Number one, we hear this all the time. Everybody's got a fever and the only prescription is more Krista. Everybody wants to hear more Krista. Really? Yeah. She said there wasn't enough Krista. Okay. And that was the, (laughs) that was the gang stalking episode. And I thought there actually was a lot of you in that episode. I'm the equivalent of cowbell. You are the equivalent of cowbell. (laughs) Sweet. (laughs) So she said more Krista. Okay. And she said, I need to get away from sounding like I'm reading, which I hear Uh, a lot. So I think next season I'm going to try bullet points instead of just typing out everything. Right. You know, and I think we just need to get more conversational. So, Uh, you know, from, from my own experience though, having it scripted exactly how you want to say it, it's just easier. You just feel like you don't stumble around as much. I find that in the moment, if I'm left to my own devices to try to figure out what I want to say, I'm going to sound like a doofus. Exactly. Yep. So that's all I wanted to say is that she said she really liked it, but just those two things. So we'll see what we can do. Cool. So are we going to go over my weird stories? Sure. Okay. So the first one just happened yesterday, and this is just me being paranoid, but I thought the group would find this uh, interesting, a word I'm trying not to use as much, but I couldn't (laughs) come up with anything else. So we have a screen house um, in our backyard. It's right up against our house. Um, it faces west and there's like a huge picture window that you can just look out into our greenhouse. And over the summer, I put every year, well, okay, the two years I've had it, I put cheap 
dollar store plastic shower curtains up that in a pretty pin print to block the sunlight because yeah. if you're sitting in this greenhouse it gets once the sun starts going down you're basically roasting yeah so i hang these shower curtains up on these pla- white plastic rings for shower curtains so that's probably like i don't know how many rings are on a shower curtain 12 i think 12 usually 12 So that's a lot of rings right yeah I was standing in our living room looking outside for whatever reason. I think Lucy was out in the backyard. And all of a sudden, I realized the shower curtains are gone. And Jim, my husband, was like, well, that's weird. And he's like, I could have sworn I just saw them this morning or yesterday. So right away, he's like, oh, the wind did it. It must have been the wind. I don't think that's possible because there would be some kind of shred of shower curtain left on the rings. I went out and looked. There is not even a, a remote remnant of a shower curtain left on any of the rings. I just find it hard to believe the wind would cleanly rip all four shower curtains off together. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they were all sort of connected and I had them tied together because otherwise they're flying all over the place. So... You could pull them all down in one shot. I just find it hard to believe the wind would do that so cleanly. And we've had really windy days this summer, and it's never made even a dent in the shower curtains. That's pretty weird. I didn't take them down. No. Jim didn't take them down. Lucy's never in the backyard without us being home, and she's not subtle about stuff. If she (laughs) got at one of those shower curtains, it would be shredded and all over the yard, and she'd probably come tearing in the house with part of it, all proud of what she'd done. So I can't figure it out. There is one like four inch sort of square piece of shower curtain near the greenhouse. That's the only remnant of it. So of course, my mind goes to somebody had to come in our yard and do that. And of course, Jim says, why the heck would anyone <laughs> do that? You'd have to jump our fence, a six foot fence. And just come and take the shower curtains. It makes no sense. But I don't know how it could come cleanly off without someone removing it. I don't know. So I don't know. I'm a little weirded out by it. I'm going with Bigfoot. Bigfoot. It could have been Bigfoot. Maybe I'm being gang stalked because that's you could just be, the kind it of could be street weird, it could be street subtle theater. thing that nobody would believe anybody yeah. would do. But <laughs> it's gone. Yep. So I don't know. Then I'm like, maybe my husband took it down over the weekend and just forgot about it. But I feel like you'd remember it I once like he would it know came up. That he did that. Yeah. So I'm weirded out by that. That's I'm just strange. a little weirded out by it. I'm yeah. going to tell myself it's the wind because it's slightly logical and the least creepy. I'm, I'm thinking Bigfoot or you're gang stalked. One <laughs> or of the gang stalked. I don't know why anyone would go through the effort of gang stalking me, but you never know. Um. So the other weird story is this happened... Is this the red light one? Yeah, the red light one. It happened like a month ago, maybe. And I actually forgot about it until I texted you saying, hey, you got to remind me to tell you. And I hadn't even told Jim that this had happened. But I was lying in bed, and I think I probably had fallen asleep and had woken up, which is very common. I wake up multiple times during the night. And if you're standing at the foot of our bed... You know, we have like an old rustic door as a headboard. And then to the right on Jim's side of the bed, there's a window with a curtain. Well, both windows have curtains and they're both room darkening shades, even though we live out in the middle of nowhere. Well, not nowhere, but it's a very quiet neighborhood with lots of trees and no streetlights. So we probably don't need room darkening shades, but I'm just that way. So our room is pitch black at night. That's how I have to be. I can't. Me too. If there's light, I can't sleep. It'll bother me all night. Yep. Yep. So I'm laying on my back. And I I look up at the ceiling over Jim's side of the bed, and I realize that I can see it. I can see the window, the ceiling, the curtain, 
kind of like the top of his lamp and it's red. It's in this just red glow. And I'm laying there for a while, like kind of like what? I don't understand. Like what's going on? Like it didn't register at first. Almost like somebody's brake lights coming in through the window. Which would be impossible. Yeah. Um, Because the street is behind our bed, oh, basically. Yeah. Everything else is yard and people's yards and stuff. Somebody checking out your shower curtains in the yard. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I have this alarm clock that it's big and white and round and it simulates the sun rising. Yeah. So 15 minutes before I want to get up, it slowly starts brightening up the room with an orange glow. So immediately I'm like, oh, it must be really early. My alarm clock is starting, but it's not a red glow. But I didn't make that connection in the moment. I look over at my alarm clock and it's completely black over here. I'm like, okay, it's not coming from... I look up again and it just fades to black. Wow. And our room (laughs) was pitch dark. So I'm laying there for probably 10 minutes trying to figure out what the heck that was. Like, I can't come up with anything. We have our phones in the room. We always put them face down so that notifications don't light up the room in the middle of the night because that'll wake me up. And even if my husband had forgotten to put his phone face down, I don't know of a notification on his phone that just lights up the room red. Notifications flash. Yeah. They pulse. They don't just light up a room and then slowly fade away. I don't know. So, yeah, it weirded me out. And it's weird that I forgot about it. But it wasn't, I was not dreaming. I was wide awake. I got up after that and actually kind of looked around the room. I went to the bathroom. I kind of walked around the house like, (laughs) maybe I should check the rest of the house. And I went back to bed and I eventually fell back asleep. But I wonder what that was. I don't know. We don't have anything else in the room that would give off a red glow like that. That's weird. It's very weird. And when my phone has a notification, it doesn't, it's not red. The only time my phone has a red light is when it's charging and we don't charge our phones in our bedroom. He has a different phone than me, but it is an Android Yeah, and they kind of behave the same way. And yeah. I, he, I mentioned it to him and he can't explain it either. That's weird. Yeah. So. Wow. You got stuff going on by your know. place. I don't know. Maybe you got aliens who like shower curtains and red <laughs> it lights. Could be. I still think Bigfoot. We had a cold couple nights. I probably wanted something to cover up with. <laughs> there was a deer directly in front of our front window the other day, but wow. that's pretty common. I still got to see your place. You do. You've never been yeah, there. No. You got to have you and Rhonda and Mark over. Over break. Mm-hmm. Over our strange sessions break. Agreed. So that's my weirdness for the the week. That's strange. I've had a lot of friends lately and strangers even that have messaged me that they've had stuff happen. Weird like stuff. Like a lot of weird things have been happening lately yeah. to, to people I know. Nothing I know. to me. So Tis the season? It it could be. It is the it, it's gonna be spooktacular that. time yes, of it year. Is. No, those are, those are cool stories. Head scratchers, if you ask yes, me. Yes, they are. I don't like head scratchers. I know you don't. I like logical explanations. When it comes to my stuff. Yeah. I like other people's head scratchers. Like my old guy crawling yeah. out of the bathroom. That is beyond creepy. Yeah. Do we have any other housekeeping? Um, just a reminder that if you want to join the strangers, you have to answer the questions because mm-hmm. we have we had a couple people apply that didn't answer the questions at all, just left them blank. So although I think Amber did that, but I know that she's yeah. listened to yeah. episodes, yep. so I said go ahead and yeah. and I know because we her, just want the course. we want the strangers to be people that actually do listen to the episodes, right? Yeah. So someone had requested you decline her eventually. Yeah, because I figured I was she wondering. She said she was going to go listen to it and come and back come and back. give us. So then so I figured fine. when she comes back, she can reapply. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and we have the end of the season approaching. Yes, we do. Which I think we have three 
more regular episodes okay. and then our season finale. Okay. Still not sure what we're going to do for the season finale. That'll uh, be I talked to November? my brother. Yeah, it'll okay. be around Thanksgiving. Before Thanksgiving. It'll be right around Thanksgiving. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I talked to Corey. Corey had some ideas for our season finale. Well, he should come on. I, I want to get him on. We yeah. just got to find a topic that could have him on. Well, We've got he a couple. suggested topics. Yes. Use those yeah. topics. Yeah, we should have him on one of these next couple episodes. I think we should. But with his work schedule, it's hard yeah. arranging it. But yeah, the end of the season is coming uh, around Thanksgiving. It will be the last episode, and then we will be off until after the holidays. Yeah, usually in January. Usually sometime back. in January. There may yeah. be a, a surprise or two yes. in there. and We'll always be on the Strangers Yeah, we'll page. always be around. We'll yeah. be posting things. It's just we need to recharge our podcasting batteries. And <laughs> and it's just really busy in the yeah. holidays. My family doesn't live in town, so I'm usually, you know, traveling a lot. And Things at my job are very... Up in the air? Yeah, so we might have a lot of time to <laughs> record backup episodes in the very near future. Uh, maybe we should get that Patreon going. Yeah, we should. I actually have an idea for a t-shirt that I, I'm trying to get going. So something that we can do ourselves okay. to try to save some okay. money. I'm excited about that. Yeah, me too. But yeah, we got to get I want a t-shirt. over break. We have to kind of figure out some merchandise yeah. stuff because people want it. Cool. Do you have any other housekeeping? I don't think so. No. I'll remember two or three things after I leave and I'll <laughs> be like, crap, I should have said I'll be that. Driving to work. <laughs> so we will get we will get into our taste test. Okay. Krista texted me last night. She's like, Do we have anything for the taste test? And I was gonna go looking for stuff yesterday. Totally forgot. I was gonna go shopping. But I did have one more thing at home that we got from Corey. Oh, nice. Back from I think his Florida trip. Okay. Oh, is so, that where the bugs came from? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I hope it's better than bugs. It's better than bugs, but I'm not, we'll see. <laughs> a little questionable. It is. Give it to you to read. Chili beans. Oh, Kurt. Spicy, Spicy and jelly tangy beans. jelly beans. I have never heard of these. Okay. So this is sort of like a play on jelly bellies. When you look at the ingredient list or whatever, it's like an Arabic or something. So oh boy. it's... Chili beans. Okay, I took a picture. I looked. The ingredients say chili powder. That's generally not super spicy, so I'm not really scared. Well, there are, I mean, there, yeah, it is in English, and yeah, that looks like Arabic. Interesting. Okay. You want to bust them open? open. Dang. You're going to make me do that. Oh, there's a. Oh, did you see how smooth that was? That was was smooth. I'm getting good at this. Oh, I'm going to take that one because it's right there. Okay. Well, they just look like jelly beans. I mean, I don't know if you can see. Like I said in the other episode, if I'm prepared for it to be spicy, that's cool. I'm going to do two at once. Less offensive. I'm going to do a green and a red. I'm doing a red. Okay. I got to take a sniff. They don't smell like anything. They don't smell spicy, so that's a good sign. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing about Jelly Bellies. They have, they have no smell to them, so you no, don't know what you're getting. That's true. Okay, are you ready? I don't think they're going to be super spicy, but the jelly beans on the wrapper have flames coming out of them, so <laughs> we're going to see. Okay. Ready? Let's do it. No the first, heat yet. first bite, they're pretty good. Just tastes like a jelly bean. I'm waiting. Oop. Okay, the burn's starting now. I don't have any burn. It's like in the, it's back here in the back of my throat oh. and my mouth. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, there it is. It's very fruity. It's, it's a good it's jelly bean. It's not bad though. It, okay, the throat's a little burny. <laughs> I don't, I couldn't tell you what fruit this is though. 
It just has like a. And see, this is. Wish the, you could see oh, Kurt's face. This is, <laughs> this is a. This is a, uh, this is the kind of hot I don't like where it's at the back of back the throat. Back of your throat. Yeah. Comes up your nose. Yeah. Do you like the tip of the tongue burn? Oh no, I don't like these. Yeah. <laughs> I wish you could. I wish you could have seen Krista's face. <laughs> I gotta drink some water. Take those home for Jim. Which water, by the way, doesn't help. But. No. Yeah, mm. I'm. I'm not even sure Jim would like these, but we'll try. We'll try. Thanks, Corey. Thanks, Corey. You need to start. Yeah, we need to pick up a really questionable we need taste. To keep test all those things here for when on. Corey is on the show, yeah, so he can. These try are going them. by the bugs, actually. Oh yeah, I don't. Oh, it's just keeps a paper getting clip. hotter. Yeah, it's not going away. Ugh. It's a sneaky burn. Oh yeah. Ugh. Thanks, Corey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Corey. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, I wish I could even identify. What kind of fruit it's supposed to be. It's a good jelly bean other than the spiciness. Interesting. Not everything needs to be made spicy. No. That annoys me. Well, one more taste test down. Somebody needs to send us something delicious. (laughs) (laughs) We've had a couple delicious ones this season. We did. We did. I'm still eating my uh, Vegemite at home. Are you? Yes, I am. Toast I have a butter. coworker from Australia, and I keep meaning to. I haven't bumped into him yet, but I wanna. I wanna confront him about his Vegemite. <laughs> confront him. Sounds like you're gonna throw him up against the wall in the hallway and. Well, he's like six him. foot four, so that probably wouldn't work no, very that well. But. Work. <laughs> mm, funny. Do we have any other? Oh, that's still burning. Yeah, oh, it is burning. Like it's like stuck it's in not my going teeth. Away right, because it's stuck in your teeth, so it's gonna keep coming back. Oh yeah. Oi to the vague. Do we do we have any other housekeeping? <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. Probably, but I don't know. <laughs> I should take notes. One of these times we'll we'll one of these seasons we'll we're figure gonna out nail what, it one of these what times. we're doing. <laughs> oh, actually I do want to mention I ran into a new podcast called Ghost Town. I don't know if you've heard of it, but they remind me of us. It's, really? It's a guy and a girl. I think she's in her twenties. I don't know how old he is. But they do, some of it is reading stuff. There's conversation. They crack the same kind of jokes that wow, we crack. I'm going to have yeah. to check this out. No Wisconsin accents, but I, I was I was enjoying it. So. I'm going to have to check this out. Yeah, Ghost Town. Hmm. It came up as one of the suggested podcasts when I was listening to Spooked. So And you're annoyed about I'm, Spooked, uh, <laughs> about having to pay? I am. I understand... Someone, I don't remember who it was, made a good point I mean, that there, people want to do this costs. for a living. There's the website, the web hosting. I mean, there are costs for doing a podcast. It's like a yearly fee and it's yeah. pretty cheap. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty cheap. And I feel like you don't need fancy equipment to do. But if you're, they're on a different level. I mean, there's like music and stuff and yeah. there's much more production that goes into it. And these people, someone made the point, people want to do it for a living. Well, then I get it. Then you probably do need to have some source of income, but I just have a don't problem with... Don't agree with that model of... No. Of I don't want to have somebody. to pay to listen to the entire season. I do like the idea, like you said, of extra episodes, like paying for bonus episodes right. or, or yeah, merchandise, merchandise or something, but Although, not, the, not the whole It is podcast. like $8 a month. <laughs> so it's not like they're asking for a lot of That's money. It's still kind of a lot. It is. Yeah. For one... I mean, I think Luminary is the host... And for $8 a month, I think you can listen to anything. So I'm probably making, uh, you know, a big deal out of nothing. But yeah. it just, it annoyed me because up until now, the whole season has always been free. Yeah. And now you have to pay for probably 95% of it. So whatever. 
I, I they're not going to run out of subscribers, and yeah. I just don't know that I'm going to pay for it. No, I would feel I'm cheap. I just couldn't make people do that. I don't know. I you know that I'm weird about that. Like I have a yeah. hard time thinking about charging anybody. Yeah, we give our stickers yeah. away. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, just, Sherry. Sherry paid three dollars for hers. <laughs> yeah, I just but, can't charge yeah. people. I would be a really bad prostitute. I'd uh. give it away for free. <laughs> Say no, just keep your money. <laughs> Interesting comparison. <laughs> Um, I have no problem selling merchandise, though, because that costs money. Well, yeah. yeah. So, and I don't think we should be giving away t-shirts, but... No. Except, unless for a contest. Yep. So, anyway. On to the story. Yeah. On to tonight's main story. <laughs> done ranting. <laughs> 20 minutes. Perfect. 20 minutes and 42 seconds. Oh, if we could just narrow that down. There'd be no <laughs> editing. Oh, yeah. That's right. So, tonight's story is about... and. I was kind of worried because I was thinking laying in bed last night. So I went on my computer when I got up. I've been doing a lot of Google searching on hijacking, <laughs> parachuting, and whether or not banks can trace serial numbers on You're money. on the FBI watch so list. So I'm going to get gang stalked. <laughs> I'm on some watch list. Yep. So this isn't, isn't good. But tonight's story is about D.B. Cooper. And one of the things that I really like about this podcast is that I didn't really know anything about the D.B. Cooper story because it never really interest. I was never really that interested in it. I don't know why. I was just like, I knew he jumped out of a plane with some money and that was all I knew. Mm-hmm. I've always been fascinated by it. I think it's because it's an unsolved mystery. Yeah. That's what's fascinating to me. And to show you how little I knew about it, the very first article I looked at said it took place in 1971. And I'm like, mm, they got mm-hmm. this wrong right off the bat because it was, I thought it was in the late 50s. Mm-hmm. And it's not. It was in 1971. I thought it was 1957. No, 1971. That's weird because I could have sworn that the is expedition weird because unknown. That's what, that's what freaked me out is Ooh, that Mandela I thought effect. it was. <laughs> it could be the Mandela effect. Did you cross reference other articles? Yeah, to find I cross reference reference on my phone right now, but. I could have sworn it was in the late 50s. That's weird. I could that have is sworn weird that you said that, that too. Josh And I think Gates. it's always because of the picture of him looks like somebody from the 50s to me. That's weird, though. I The the year 1957 jumps out in my mind. No, it, it happened on Wednesday, November 24th, 1971. Dang. So that is really weird. I'm having a weird Mandela effect. That is really <laughs> weird that you thought the same thing. That is really weird. Because when I first started looking it up, I'm like, this article's already got it wrong. It says 1971. <laughs> it's not. It was in the late 50s. So I go to the next article, and I'm like, well, what the hell? This one says 71 also. I'm like this happened. This happened that. in my lifetime. I was I was over a year old when this happened, and that just doesn't. That's pre Krista. That's <laughs> pre Krista. <laughs> yep. That was PK. But that <laughs> yep. just it didn't feel right to me that it happened in the seventies. So no. it's really weird that you said that too. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay, that's gonna bug me. I I deleted that episode. Now it was on my DVR, so I can't even rewatch it. It's freaking me out that you it's thought the same thing. Totally because it, freaking me okay. out. Anyway, moving on. Moving on. <laughs> Uh, you know, as you know, to date, this is the only unsolved skyjacking case in U.S. history, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. I think that they solved all these. Well, and the FBI has officially closed it as yeah. unsolved. Yep. Like, they're not even researching nope. it anymore. They'll take evidence. That if anybody has any, you know, they'll take people's calls and stuff, but they're mm-hmm. not actively investigating it. So the story of D.B. Cooper begins on November 24th, 1971. <laughs> I was going to say 58. I thought it was okay. 58. We were in the same realm, though. So hmm. weird. It bothers me. <laughs> it bothers me, Dang. too. Okay. So November 24th, 1971, the day before Thanksgiving. 
On this day, the day before Thanksgiving, a nondescript middle-aged man carrying a briefcase walked up to the flight counter of Northwest Orient Airlines in Portland International Airport. He bought a one-way ticket to Seattle, Washington. It was like 20 bucks or 25 bucks. Oh, geez. So he used the name Dan Cooper. He paid with cash and he boarded the plane. Flight 305 would be a half-hour flight aboard a Boeing 727. Cooper settled in for the flight, smoking a cigarette and ordering a bourbon and soda. It's just it's weird to me that Things you would smoke. Things are so different back then. <laughs> I, I also in the airplane. Well, and maybe you'll touch on this, but there were actually a rash of other hijacking attempts. Yes, there were, and there was no airport security at this time. No, he just waltzed onto that plane yeah, with nothing that, inspected. And now you got to take your shoes off. No, I remember. I remember machine. when I like every like a lot of the strangers do. I could remember when I could actually walk to the gate with whoever I was there saying goodbye to. Right now you got to jump through hoops to to do anything, you which is understandable. Can't do it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's totally understandable, but it's just so weird to think of how lax things yeah, were back they could in smoke these days. On planes. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's insane. Yep. And he likes his bourbon and soda, apparently. Yeah. I've never had bourbon and soda. I'm not a bourbon fan. No, I don't like sweet alcohol. No? Uh-uh. Fellow passengers described him as a man in his mid-40s between 5'10 and 6 feet tall. According to flight crew and fellow passengers, he was wearing a lightweight black raincoat, loafers, a dark suit, a neatly pressed collared white shirt, a black clip-on tie, and a mother-of-pearl tie pin. So it's interesting. I, and I don't know if you want to come back to this. Sounds like a man in black. Well, no. There is actually a different description given by somebody on the plane who sat. His name was Robert Gregory. He sat diagonally across the aisle from I remember seeing this when I was researching it, but I didn't remember him saying anything different. Well, this comes from the FBI file. So there, Josh... Um, Gates? Yes. Josh Gates interviewed an investigative reporter who, of course, wouldn't say how he got the file, but he got the file. And so Robert Gregory described him, and this is a weird detail, but he said his hair was jet black and wavy with a greasy patent leather sheen, that he was wearing a reddish brown suit that was more like a russet color with wide lapels, and the clip-on black tie is correct, um, but that he was very ordinary in appearance and looked somewhat disheveled and like he had just thrown the outfit together. Yeah. I think a lot of people look at that sketch and think, oh, he's like, you know, some kind of dapper, suave, dapper yeah. guy. And it apparently he was very, very much different. Yeah, that's that. not the picture I had at all in my head. Right. Of what he looked like. Yeah. I thought that was fascinating that, you know, this particular description from someone who's on the plane was never really taken into account. That's weird. And it I differs from other people's descriptions. Huh. Because you would think that the flight attendants that saw him the most would have the most accurate. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's bizarre. So just contradicting, you know, yeah. there seems to be conflicting yep. information. The flight left on schedule at 2.50 p.m. Not long after takeoff, Cooper handed a note to flight attendants Florence Schaffner. Schaffner assumed the guy was hitting on her and giving her his phone number, so she put the note in her purse without looking at it. Which, I mean, I totally get. Totally. It's the 70s. You know, it could add some cheesy pickup line. Right. At least it was before dick pics were a thing. (laughs) (laughs) It was. And now they would just text it. Because in the 70s, they would have done anything. Yep. So he must have saw that and was like, dope. So then uh, when he saw that she didn't read it, Cooper leaned towards her and whispered, quote, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. That'll get your attention. Mm Mm-hmm. She read the note, but Cooper later took the note back, so the exact wording of the note is unknown. 
Schaffner just remembers that it mentioned a bomb being in his briefcase. After reading the note, Cooper asked Schaffner to sit beside him, which she did. She then asked him if she could see the bomb, so he opened the briefcase. According to Wikipedia, quote, Cooper opened his briefcase long enough for her to glimpse eight red cylinders, four on top of four, attached to wires coated with red insulation and a large cylindrical battery. Hmm. Sounds like a typical... Sounds bomby to me. Sounds bombish to me. <laughs> typical yeah. bomb. And there's a lot of different versions of the story. In some versions I read or listened to on podcasts, the note tells her to sit next to him. On some that I listened to, he tells her to sit next okay. to him. So there's a lot of discrepancies and mm-hmm. stuff that I've looked. I mean, they all follow the basic same yeah. storyline, but there's a lot of discrepancies. After allowing her to look into the briefcase, he told Schaffner his demands. $200,000 in, quote, negotiable American currency and some what does Some, that mean? I don't know. Some accounts said that he specified $20 bills. Okay. But other accounts just said he said negotiable American currency, which is not something you would think somebody from here would say, like an American would say. Hmm. Hmm. Or he that's called an it American money. It's okay. just weird to me. I don't know. Well, what would the other option be? What are they going to do? Money. Give him yen or something? Well, you know what well, I mean? I know, but why did he have to specify American money? Right. To me, that's always like that stood out as weird. Yeah. <laughs> Pay him in yen. <laughs> why would they have yen on the plane? I don't know. <laughs> he also requested four parachutes, two primary and two reserve chutes, and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. Some accounts say he asked for the money in $20 bills, which would have weighed around 21 pounds. I expect it to be heavier than that, mm-hmm. I guess. $200,000 would be worth over a million dollars in today's money. Schaffner got up and went to the cockpit telling the pilots what happened. When she returned, Cooper had put dark sunglasses on. That's the image I always have of yeah. him in my head with the sunglasses and the suit. The pilot, William Scott, contacted the Seattle-Tacoma airport to tell them what happened, and the airport called the local and federal authorities. The 36 other passengers were lied to and told that their arrival in Seattle would be delayed because of a minor mechanical difficulty. Hmm. And at first I was like... How did they not know what was going on? I'm guessing they were quiet about it. I I don't know. At first I was kind of annoyed that they lied, but of course, what are they going to do? So dude on here has a bomb. (laughs) Stay calm. Just chill. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Enjoy the rest (laughs) of your flight. Who wants peanuts? (laughs) Northwest Orient's president, Donald Nyrup, authorized payment of the ransom and ordered all employees to cooperate fully with the hijackers' demands. The aircraft circled Puget Sound for approximately two hours to allow Seattle police and the FBI time to assemble Cooper's parachutes and ransom money and to take photographs of the $20 bills that they were giving to Cooper so they could be matched up at a later date. That's a lot of bills to be taking. And in some of the shows that I watch or the podcasts I listen to, they talk about how how did they do that? I mean, mm-hmm. that's a lot of, you figure. 200. I imagine you could spread them out on a table and take one photo. Possibly. I wouldn't imagine them taking a photo of each bill one at a time. If they're $20 bills, that's 10,000 bills. Yeah. Even if they put a chunk of them on a table and take a picture, that's a, a lot. Well, they I had don't know. two hours. <laughs> yeah, but still. It is odd. That poor guy that came to work that day and ended up <laughs> clicking pictures of money all day. Yeah, and they didn't have digital cameras, so... No. Hmm. Tacoma's McCord Air Force Base offered to provide the parachutes, but Cooper rejected this offer. He wanted civilian parachutes with user-operated ripcords, not military-issued ones. 
Seattle police eventually contacted the owner of a local skydiving school. His school was closed, but they got him to sell them four parachutes. I find this detail odd because a lot of people theorize that he was military. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people do because he, it seems like he had parachuting knowledge, Mm -hmm. but some people argue that point that he didn't. Mm Mm-hmm. As a plane waited to land, people talked a little more with Cooper, and not going to lie, he actually sounds like a really cool guy. <laughs> uh, except he was making Schaffner constantly light his cigarettes for him, which is kind of a... It is weird. Why couldn't he kind do Kind of a, a dick move, but it was the 50s, I suppose. 70s. 70s. Wow. <laughs> See? <laughs> we are. Okay. <sighs> the hell is wrong with us? Actually, he... So do you know how... He smoked a total of eight cigarettes yeah. during the flight. Okay. Yep. Schaffner described him as calm, polite, and well-spoken, nothing like a stereotypical hijacker. Tina Mucklow, another flight attendant, agreed. She later told investigators, quote, He wasn't nervous. He seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all the time. He ordered a second bourbon and water and paid his drink tab, attempting to give Schaffner the change as a tip. That could explain why he was so calm and polite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the bourbon. Yeah. He also offered to request meals for the flight crew during the stop in Seattle, but they declined the offer. So he's just like going out of his way, it seems Mm -hmm. like, to be nice. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's one of the reasons that he's kind of become like a folk hero. Oh, sure. Is because nobody was hurt. Right. And he was, he seemed like a nice guy. So You know, it's kind of like the Robin Hood stealing from the rich, giving... So there's a town nearby where he allegedly jumped out of the plane that yeah. has a year an annual party yes. yep we're gonna get to that okay because the they refer to him yep. as a robin hood yep yeah and again i guess i can kind of see that like yeah. nobody was hurt it's probably i mean the insurance the i think it was the insurance company ended up paying the money so okay. i mean nobody was really right hurt which was kind of cool and i think that's one of the reasons why people like it because yeah it was who knows if harmless. it was actually a bomb yeah An FAA official contacted the captain and asked Cooper for permission to come aboard the jet. The official apparently wanted to warn Cooper of the dangers and consequences of air piracy, but Cooper denied his request. Hmm. At 5.39 p.m., the aircraft landed at Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Northwest Orient Seattle operations manager Al Lee approached the aircraft and delivered the cash-filled knapsack and parachutes to Mucklow. That's another guy that went into work that day not thinking I might end up getting shot carrying this money (laughs) to the plane. What nobody realized until well after the hijacking was that one of the reserve shoots given to Cooper was a training shoot that was more or less a dummy shoot being sewed shut. It was marked with a large X, but in everyone's haste, nobody realized that. Oh, Lord. Yeah. And, you know, the reason everybody assumes the reason he asked for four parachutes was so that they didn't give him one dummy parachute. Right. You know, like, yeah. here you go, buddy. Yeah, because we'll why would money, you need... Pick up the money from your body. Right. So they assumed that he was going to take a hostage with him and make them parachute too, so they couldn't chance it and give him a parachute that wouldn't open. Hmm. But they ended up giving him one that wouldn't open anyway. Mm-hmm. Once the delivery was completed, Cooper ordered all passengers, Schaffner, and senior flight attendants Alice Hancock to leave the plane. During refueling, Cooper talked to the cockpit crew and told them his flight plan, which consisted of a southeast course towards Mexico City at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft, around 100 knots, at a maximum 10,000-foot altitude. 
He also said that he wanted the landing gear kept in the takeoff landing position, the wing flaps to be lowered 15 degrees, and the cabin to remain unpressurized. The co-pilot told Cooper that the aircraft's range was limited to approximately 1,000 miles under his specifications, which meant that a second refueling would be necessary before entering Mexico. Cooper and the crew discussed options and agreed to stop at Reno, Nevada to refuel. At 7.40 p.m., the plane took off with only five people on board. Cooper, Pilot Scott, Flight Attendant Mucklow, Co-Pilot Ratacek, Ratacek? Ratacek? the Co-Pilot, and Flight <laughs> Engineer H.E. Anderson. Two F-106 fighter aircraft were deployed from nearby McCord Air Force Base to follow behind the airliner out of Cooper's view. There ended up being five planes in total trailing the hijacked plane. None of these pilots ever saw Cooper leave the plane. Right. Which at first I thought was weird, but then it was when nighttime. you find out that it was nighttime and because the plane was flying so slow, these jets and and planes that were flying behind him were actually flying in. It's a very, loud a very squirrel outside our window. It's definitely a squirrel. It's mad. Yes. <laughs> It could be a perp making squirrel sounds. <laughs> it could be. Maybe he has my shower curtain. <laughs> but <laughs> but they, uh, they had to fly in circles because the plane was going so slow that they had to purposely slow mm. themselves down. So you would think they would... So ah, chances are dark, they would though. not have seen him yeah. because who knows what direction they were facing well, and the, following the, the plane. The stairs that he would have climbed down to jump from were at the very back of the plane. Yeah. So, yeah. But if they had to stay that far away from the plane so that it, they weren't seen by cooper you know it's it's not a mystery to me why they didn't see him no, jump out of the plane. after takeoff cooper had mucklow join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and told him to remain in there with the door closed at this time mucklow observed cooper tying something around his waist around eight o'clock p.m a warning light flashed in the cockpit indicating that the aft air stair apparatus had been activated the crew's offer of assistance via the aircraft's intercom system was refused with an angry-sounding no. The crew soon noticed a subjective change of air pressure, indicating that the aft door was open. At approximately 8.13 p.m., the aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement significant enough to require the pilot bringing the plane back to a level flight. Scott made sure to note the spot where this movement happened, 25 miles north of Portland, near the Lewis River. At approximately 10.15 p.m., the aircraft's aft air stair was still deployed when the pilots landed the plane at the Reno airport. FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff's deputies, and the Reno police surrounded the jet, but a search quickly confirmed that Cooper was no longer on the plane. This immediately became one of the biggest investigations and manhunts in FBI history. Not to change the subject, but are you hearing stuff? No. Okay. <laughs> other than the angry squirrel I, no i thought i heard like the door shut like somebody came into the building but you you normally hear that too. yeah no i've heard a couple of thumps i didn't hear anything hmm. would you see if somebody drove in probably not because i'm okay. looking at my notes or you okay interesting sorry Some fascinating weird, weirdness here <laughs> <Fascinating>. <laughs> Oh, and I didn't know this either. I read this on Wikipedia and thought this was really interesting. In Oregon, everybody says I say Oregon funny. I got a organ. 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 Like organ? Like Oregon. a heart or a liver? I'm still going to say it the way I always do. An Oregon, Oregon man named D.B. Cooper, who had a minor police record, was one of the first persons of interest in the case. He was contacted by Portland police on the off chance that the hijacker had used his real last name or a previously used alias during the crime. 
He was quickly ruled out as a suspect, but a local reporter named James Long, rushing to meet an imminent deadline, confused the eliminated suspect's name with the name given by the hijacker. A wire service reporter republished the error, followed by numerous other media sources, and the wrong name, D.B. Cooper, became lodged in the public's memory. Mm -hmm. So he was not D.B. Cooper. He gave his name as Dan Cooper. But because of a mistake, it's been D.B. Cooper ever since then. So did you research where Dan Cooper came from? Yes. Okay, good. Yep. The comic book? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) The FBI searched the plane, finding 66 unidentified fingerprints. But come on, it's a passenger plane. Right. That's what I, I was always like, seriously? Yeah. God knows it's how many. very insignificant. They also found his black clip-on tie, which was always weird to me because he was so careful. He took the note back so that mm-hmm. they didn't have his note, that they couldn't trace fingerprints or his writing. But he left his tie there, which makes me wonder if his tie didn't blow off when he was standing in the doorway and he was just like, crap, I'm just going to have to leave it. Like, why would his tie be there? That never made sense to me when he was so careful about not leaving evidence of his stuff. He left the cigarette butts behind too. Yeah. But back then, DNA testing wasn't wasn't even a thing. The FBI had the plane fly the same route with Cooper's exact specifications and FBI agents pushed a 200-pound sled off the steps of the plane to see if it affected the level of the plane like it did the night with Cooper. It did, so they estimated that the exact time of Cooper's jump was 8.13 p.m. At that time, the aircraft was flying through a heavy rainstorm over the Lewis River in southwestern Washington. FBI agents and local police scoured the area, searching from the ground and from the air. Farmhouses were searched. A submarine was brought in to check out a nearby lake. It remains to this day as one of the most intensive and exhaustive search operations, but nothing was found. A skeleton was found, but it just turned out to belong to a teenage girl who was murdered weeks before. Oh, that's all? (laughs) That's all, you know. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that was one of the articles said it just turned out to belong to a teenage girl. So i just Mm, leave that there, I guess. Rewards were put out both for Cooper and for any of the bills that were given to him, but none ever turned up. All the serial numbers started with the letter L. Actually. Some of them did turn up. Yes, okay, good. As far as turned up in circulation. None of them turned up in circulation. Right. Later analysis showed that the original landing zone estimation may have been off, putting it south-southeast of the original estimate in the drainage area of the Washougal River. Only a few pieces of evidence linked to D.B. Cooper have turned up from 1978 to 2017. In 1978, a placard printed with instructions for lowering the aft stairs of a 727 was found by a deer hunter near a logging road about 13 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington, well north of Lake Merwin, but within Flight 305's basic flight path. So they believe that that came off the door or he was holding it when he jumped. Yeah. But that is... I've never heard that. Yeah, that's believed to have been the placard that was on the plane. Okay. In February 1980, and this is the one that most people know, in February 1980, eight-year-old Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at a beachfront known as Tina Bar, about nine miles from the estimated landing site. He uncovered three packets of the ransom cash as he raked the sandy riverbank to build a campfire. The bills were significantly disintegrated, but still bundled in the original rubber bands, which is weird. Mm Mm-hmm. FBI technicians confirmed that the money was indeed a portion of the ransom. Two packets of $120 bills each and a third packet of 90 all arranged in the same order as when given to Cooper. 
1986, after protracted negotiations, the recovered bills were divided equally between Ingram and Northwest Orient's insurer. The FBI retained 14 examples as evidence. Ingram sold 15 of these bills at auction in 2008 for $37,000. So some people theorize that D.B. Cooper planted those there as, yes. as a form of misdirection. Yes. Which makes sense. Mm-hmm. But There are a couple other things that they think he did, yeah, too. Yeah. To date, none of the 9,710 remaining bills have turned up anywhere in the world. Their serial numbers remain available online for public search. Hmm. The Columbia River ransom money and the air stair instruction placard remain the only confirmed physical evidence from the hijacking ever found outside the aircraft. What's weird, though, is that one of the three 100-bill stacks only contained 90 bills. Hmm. Like, for some reason, $200 was taken out. Yeah, that's odd. That is odd. Unless the kid pocketed it. <laughs> this one. Did you see you. the pictures yeah, of the Yeah, they're all torn up. Yeah, they're all like, there's no coroners. They're all, yeah. you could not, I don't think, give that to anybody to buy anything. Mm-mm. They're so bad. In 2017, a group of volunteer investigators uncovered what they believe to be potential evidence, and they think it's a decades-old parachute strap in the Pacific Northwest. This was followed later in August 2017 with a piece of foam suspected of being part of Cooper's backpack, but, you know, hot. Well, some people theorize that the pilots, knowing that, or thinking at least, assuming there was a bomb on the plane, would not have flown over a populated area. So they actually theorize that they actually, they took the flight path west of what the known and accepted flight path was which makes sense yeah and i think it correlates to where this money was found but also would explain why maybe other evidence was found west of that's a good point where the flight path was it's believed that the eruption of mount st helens on may 18th 1980 may have potentially destroyed or buried any remaining evidence Mm -hmm. that's plausible Mm mm-hmm In 2007, the FBI announced that a partial DNA profile had been retrieved from the clip-on tie that Cooper left on the plane. When? 2007. Okay. Is that what I said? I don't know. I didn't didn't hear. (laughs) That's why I asked again. Krista wasn't paying attention. (laughs) No, I was paying attention. I just, I don't know, blacked out on that moment. They said that the tie had two small DNA samples and one large sample, but it was difficult to draw any real conclusions from these samples. In March 2009, a group known as the Cooper Research Team used an electron microscope on the tie and found lycopodium. Is it lycopodium? It found lycopodium spores and fragments of bismuth and aluminum on the tie. The lycopodium spores were likely from a pharmaceutical product. Oh, okay. I got totally different information. In November 2011, it was announced that particles of pure titanium had been found on the tie. At that time, titanium was really only found in metal fabrication or production facilities or at chemical companies using it to store extremely corrosive substances. The findings suggest that Cooper may have been a chemist or a metallurgist. Metallurgist. So on, on Expedition Unknown, Josh had a lab test the tie, and they found over 100,000 particles on it, included were cerium, lanthanum, yttrium and mercury and i guess a a significant enough portion of the particles found on it are things that are used in the creation of television screens yes i remember reading that and radar screens and so that at the time they considered that well now 
you know, it's probably yeah. not that big of a deal. But back then, that was a highly specialized yeah. and skilled yes. job. So it did sort of suggest that he worked in some kind of well, factory. Well, they theorized that he might have worked in a plant, a chemical plant, uh, a plant that made the TV mm-hmm. stuff, or that he might have been a manager in one of those plants, or at a company that recovered scrap metal from those types of plants, which right. makes sense. And it would help to eliminate yes. a lot of suspects. In January 2017, the rare earth minerals cerium and stratonium sulfide had also been identified among particles from the tie. A possible source of these rare materials include plants that manufactured cathode ray tubes, such as the Portland firms Teledyne and Tektronics. But one of the other rare uses for these elements in the 1970s was Boeing's supersonic transport development project, suggesting the possibility that Cooper was a Boeing employee. Mm, which would I had make, not heard that. Yeah, which would make sense if he had a beef with the company. Mm-hmm. Why not hijack? He also gave very specific flight instructions. Yeah. He had to have some yep. knowledge. Yes, that's what everybody said is that he had some knowledge of how of, planes, of how planes and, work. Yeah, so safe parachuting altitude etc on july 8th 2016 the fbi announced that it was officially suspending active investigation of the cooper case citing a need to focus its investigative resources and manpower on issues of higher and more urgent priority on the fbi website there is currently a 28 part packet full of evidence gathered over the years all of the evidence being open to the public to read and of course there were tons of copycat you know people started hijack yeah yeah there was one that i thought was interesting because this would totally be me if i ever tried hijacking a plane (laughs) this is like my spirit hijacker okay (laughs) on my birthday too july 11th 1980 glenn k Tripp seized northwest flight 608 at seattle tacoma airport demanding six hundred thousand dollars two parachutes and the assassination of his boss guy didn't like his boss Mm. However, a flight attendant had managed to sneak Valium into Tripp's alcoholic beverage, making them all, uh, <laughs> you know, making them kind of loopy. And this, is what, this would be me. After a lengthy standoff, Tripp reduced his demands to three cheeseburgers and a head start <laughs> on getting away from the police, <laughs> which is awesome. I wish the police would it's give me a head start. Yeah, got right. the I just love the idea of, give me, just give me a head start. Just give me a head start. In 10 minutes. <laughs> and three cheeseburgers. And three cheeseburgers. But he was apprehended. On January 21st, 1983, (laughs) while still on probation, he hijacked the same Northwest flight, this time en route, and demanded to be flown to Afghanistan. When the plane landed, he was shot and killed by FBI agents. Wow. Why would you want to go to Afghanistan? I don't know. I I could pick a hundred other places I'd rather go. (laughs) Three uh, cheeseburgers, I understand. I'm just picturing him running with a cheeseburger (laughs) in each hand, like rappers trailing behind. (laughs) Ten-minute head start. (laughs) So there's a couple theories. Okay. There's always a couple theories. Yes. Theory number one, there was no D.B. Cooper. It was a plot hatched by members of that flight crew to steal money. Mm. Not really buying but, that one. <laughs> I but don't. fooled other passengers? Uh, apparently. Apparently. Okay. Uh, I see this one every now and then, and it just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, I did. And they, th- they always bring up the fact that nobody saw him jump out of the plane. Right. And they, they theorize that this flight crew threw the money down to retrieve it later. Mm. But they also said on the episode of Expedition Unknown that they never really looked into anyone else on the flight. No. They didn't really investigate them at no. all. No. Nope. But he had been on the 
I mean, he bought a ticket. Yes. So, I mean, there was a physical person. Yes. That's why I just never could really understand that. I mean, I understand the throwing the money out of the plane. Yeah, he could have uh, been part of the whole thing. I thought this was interesting. In 2016, the investigative files were released by the FBI to the general public. One of the items that shows up is that a man matching Cooper's general description had talked to some pilots two weeks prior to the hijacking. The man sat in a cockpit with two pilots and said that he was working on a new movie script. The man was wearing a business suit. He had a mild and well-spoken voice and stood around six feet tall. According to the FBI reports, he specifically wanted to know the best way to drop an object from a plane to someone waiting below. Hmm. He was told by the pilots that flying at a low speed, low altitude with a cabin depressurized has the best chance of being accurate. When the FBI investigated, the pilots could not recall the name of the movie studio, the films a man had made, or the name of the new movie the man was working on. He was never it was all made up. Uh, probably. But, but I, I understand mean, the is... idea of throwing the money. Yeah. But still, I, on a really windy night, I, don't, I just don't buy, I don't buy it. I don't buy that. Well, even if you were hatching some plot to throw the money off and you weren't like part of the flight crew, you'd yeah. still have to get off the plane somehow. Yeah. So you'd have to and There's parachute. people that theorize he hid on the plane. Oh, but the FBI mm. searched the plane like crazy, yeah. and there were, according to some of the stuff that well, I don't check I, that closet. That one's according good. to some of the stuff I read, there weren't a lot of like hidey holes where you could <laughs> put yourself and then come right. out after everybody left and tiptoe off. Not that you could get to from the interior of the plane, I would think. Yeah, yeah. So I just don't buy that there was no DB Cooper or that he was there and just threw the money out and stayed on the plane. I think there were too many witnesses. Yep, don't buy it. Theory number two: Cooper died in the fall. That's and a lot highly of people, likely. There is a really good... I think they would find him, though. I know. There is a really good podcast... Missing 411. <laughs> <laughs> there is a really good podcast dedicated to D.B. Cooper called The Cooper Vortex. Okay. And I listened to a lot of those while I was researching, and I listened to one where the ho- the guest argued that he did die, and then I listened to one where the guest argued that he didn't die. So it, The Cooper Vortex, if you're in a D.B. Cooper, it's a really good podcast. The FBI speculated from the beginning that Cooper did not survive the jump. Special Agent Larry Carr, leader of the investigative team from 2006 until its dissolution in 2016, said, quote, Diving into the wilderness without a plan, without the right equipment, in such terrible conditions, he probably never even got his chute open. He went on to say, quote, We originally thought Cooper was an experienced jumper, perhaps even a paratrooper, but we concluded after a few years that this was simply not true. No experienced parachutist would have jumped in the pitch black night in the rain with a 200 mile an hour wind in his face wearing loafers and a trench coat. It was simply too risky. He also missed that his reserve chute was only for training and had been sewn shut, something a skilled skydiver would have known right away. Although someone else on this episode who was a retired FBI agent and a former military parachutist said that they're trained to jump at night in bad weather and terrible conditions. I believe it. And that they argued that he actually chose the older model of the parachute because he was used to working with it. Apparently, there's one parachute left. It's in a museum. It's the only one that's ever been recovered. And it's a newer model. They said that the fact that he chose an older model could suggest that he was familiar with it because he's a was a parachutist. I, I Other per- people say he randomly grabbed one. And I personally think he was familiar with I do what too. he was doing. I do too. And Carr goes on to say, 
Even if he made it to the ground alive, it was winter and he was dressed for air travel, not forest survival. It's almost certain he had no accomplices waiting to meet him. For one thing, there would have been no way for anyone to track his location. His instructions to the pilot were just fly to Mexico, and he jumped at a random location with zero ground visibility. So there's another theory about that, though. Because, and this was the retired parachutist who mm-hmm. said this. He, his theory was that when they felt the plane moving, that D.B. Cooper was actually just jumping up and down on the stairs to make people think he jumped out. That's actually pretty good. And then actually nobody went back and yeah. looked. They yeah. didn't go check the stairs until they landed. He yeah. could have jumped off much later. But you would think that you jumping off the plane would still, they would have felt a bounce after he did his little bouncy bounce pretending to jump off. Maybe. I don't know. They actually, he theorized he jumped off near Reno, which winter wouldn't make any difference because it's desert. Yeah. And then Josh actually did a skydiving with some guys over the over the desert in Reno. Yep. And it was hilarious because he was absolutely terrified. <laughs> he did not want to wanna I need do to watch it. that episode. Oh, it's so good. I, I felt his pain, though, because I think skydiving would be absolutely... I would never do it. It's like a nightmare. Uh, researcher Robert Blevins disagrees with this. He says, quote, Despite what the FBI believes, Cooper probably did survive the jump. The area between Ariel and Amboy, Washington, is the most likely drop zone for Cooper, and it is more rolling hills and modest forests than it is a wilderness. The lack of a body, lack of the briefcase, it's also a clue. A parachute found buried in Amboy, Washington, was dismissed by the FBI a week after it was found in 2008, but initially the Seattle FBI said it was the right size, the right color, and found in the right place. Mm. They dismissed it shortly afterward without giving a reason why. However, the chute was missing its container and harness, which means a human being had to disconnect them after the chute reached the ground and moved them elsewhere. Perhaps Cooper used the container to transfer the ransom money from the noticeable bank bag to the container. Why would someone take the trouble to bury the chute unless they wanted it to be hidden? Right. You know? People don't just go around burying parachutes. But the people that think that he did die say that the fact that the serial numbers never showed up, the serial numbers of the money never showed up again to show that like the money is long gone. Anywhere. But this or is Or he where, went to another country. This is where I had a hard time finding... I spent like one whole morning looking up how... If a bank can track serial numbers on money is if it's used internationally that'd be my question what if he went possibly to europe and but like used i was there? listening to on that podcast the guy said you go to a bank you give the teller some money the next person comes up the teller gives him the money that you gave the teller they don't always put the money through a machine to count right right but still there's a lot of bills there and you would think some of these bills would have shown up but i cannot get a good grasp on how, how it works. well this is checked. Especially back in the 70s. Like I said, well, I'm probably, now, I'm probably on some still... list now because I spent a whole morning <laughs> trying to figure out if bills can be traced that way. So if you go to another country, which you've done, like you went to London, you you can't use... Can you use American money there? Or did you have to do an exchange? You had to do an exchange. So th- that would be a really easy way to get rid of the But money. still, you would think that the exchange place would have a means that you are a machine that you would put your money into... That would flag it if it yeah. had these serial numbers in the know. system. Like worldwide, they would have done that? I would assume so. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Reddit user Snake Snake 9 said, quote, Oftentimes in films, I see it mentioned that banknotes that are paid out for ransom have had their serial numbers written down so that bills can later be tracked. 
What I don't get is by what mechanism is this done? When you go into a store, I've never seen the cashier check the serial number on the cash you give them <laughs> no. and compare it against a database. So at what point is the number tracked? Does the bank scan it when they receive it to process the money and then compare it against some database of serial numbers? Even then, surely the number would come via a third party, say a store bringing in their cash receipts, and not necessarily from someone right. who directly received the illegal funds. Yeah. Or is this just something that happens in films and doesn't actually happen in real life? Reddit user can't even use this thing, <laughs> replied, quote, I can't speak for every financial institution, but here at the branch I work at, we do have a machine that counts cash in and dispenses cash out that does scan and record serial numbers. What it does with those numbers, I couldn't tell you. So I don't know. I, I, I tried. I cannot get a grasp on, like these days, when you, I mean back, I think even in the 70s too, when you would put money in a vending machine, the vending machine knows the denomination of money you're putting mm-hmm. in. So is it unreasonable? Is it unreasonable it. to to assume that it that there is on the money in the magnetic strip that there's a serial number, the same serial number that's on the outside of the money? So when these banks run these bills through all these machines, I'm assuming that it's tabulating or or recording their serial numbers. Mm-hmm. It's just I think I listened to the Sofa King podcast about this, and they were arguing back and forth about whether or not money is tracked that way. These days in this surveillance world we live in, I'm willing to bet that money is tracked that way, especially, especially with the new in, things that they added to money, the, the yeah, you know, like the safeguards. Security yeah, stuff. Yeah, security stuff. Especially in a case like this where it's unsolved. Yeah. You would think those serial numbers would be flagged somehow. Yeah, but you would think that there'd be a national database that every machine right. that sorted money was tied to that it would flag it if Otherwise money, it'd be pointless. Yeah. <laughs> But none of this money has ever showed up, but I can't get a grasp on whether or not that's suspicious. Right. I you can't know. either. So I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. And theory number three, Cooper survived. That's one of the big theories is that he did survive. And there's a lot of people that have different theories about who he was. Mm-hmm. Because we're going to be running a little short on time. I think I had eight suspects, but I'm going to narrow it down to three. So you're going to talk about the comic book at all? Uh, yeah, we'll get into okay, the comic good. book a little bit. So I'm just going to talk about, we'll see how much time we got. Well, I did want to mention too, and maybe you were going to get to this, but those cigarette butts were taken into evidence, but the FBI lost them at some point. <laughs> so now something That's, that could be tested yeah, for DNA yeah, is gone. gone, which I think is kind of odd. You, local police department losing evidence, not a big deal. The FBI, do they normally lose evidence I, in one of the I, biggest unsolved mysteries in our history? Mysteries and there's our a history. lot of people that think the FBI does not want it solved by citizen groups because it'll make them look bad. So there's people that probably theorize that they lost the cigarette butts on purpose so that mm. people couldn't. There are a lot of but citizens. I, I don't think the FBI would. I think they'd be happy just to have it solved. I don't think they're going to care. Right. You know, not everything is a conspiracy. <laughs> no. So we're just going to look at a couple suspects here. Uh, one of the funnier suspects that. Started off as kind of a joke, but that people now kind of buy is Tommy Wiseau. Do you know who that is? Mm-mm. The Room? The movie The Room? Like one of the worst movies. Wait, when did this movie come out? Uh, 1990s? Oh, I have 2000? no idea. Like horrible. you never seen The Room. I don't have you seen so. like, part, like bad Google parts of The Room? Uh, I don't know. Maybe I haven't. I just can't remember. Um, there's another movie called Room. 
that I'm thinking of, but that just came out in the, like the last five no, years. I'll send you a link to like the highlights of the, the movie, room. The Room, and it is like this god awful. It's so bad. So it's like that guy. Yes. Okay. It's, no, it's I don't. Tommy Wiseau. Okay, I'm not familiar. I will send you because uh, I was watching the YouTube. Link so they think this night. guy did this? Yes. Okay. I mean, this movie, my God. He looks like a total burnout. If you have not, if you've never seen the movie The Room, do Is yourself a favor. Is it a horror favor. movie? No. Or, no. No. It's become like. So we came it's become like cult status, though. Yes, it's become like a uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show where theaters have midnight screenings oh. where people talk to the screen, people throw spoons at the screen. It's it's. How have I never heard of this? That's, I'll send after we leave. I'll send you a link. But okay. it is just the most god awful. I can't even. Like I can't even I can't get even, through it. It's not I can't worth even. watching. No, unless we but, wanted to do a review of it. That'd be kind of <laughs> I can't. I don't think I could sit through the whole thing. <laughs> but there's people that think Tommy Wiseau is. D.B. Cooper. So did and he resemble th- him at the time? Maybe a little bit, but the, the thing is that nobody knows where he got his money from. That's the only thing that ties in Tommy Wiseau with D.B. Cooper is that people don't know how he got all the money he has. To make a movie or just money he the has? The money he has. Uh, the website XKCD published a comic on July 28th, 2014 saying... In making fun of conspiracy theories that they thought Tommy Wiseau was D.B. Cooper, and it kind of went from there, oh that boy. there's some people now that legitimately think hmm. he is. Okay. So, The Room. I mean, my God, you got to watch that. Okay. Uh, another interesting suspect is Barbara Dayton. A woman? Barbara Dayton was born and raised with the name Robert Dayton until 1969, when she had the first gender reassignment surgery performed in Washington State. In 1977, she became friends with a couple named Ron and Pat Foreman. According to the Foreman's website, legendofdbcooper.com, quote, The group often flew together to airport restaurants for lunch. Usually Barb was rather quiet in these gatherings. She never seemed comfortable around even small groups of people. But when the subject of the Cooper skyjacking would come up, Barb became quite animated, jumping to the defense of the skyjacker if a derogatory comment was made. That's weird. After one of these tirades, Ron jokingly said, quote, I know, Barb is D.B. Cooper. A few weeks later, a young couple and Barb joined us at our house for coffee. The subject once again went to Cooper, and Barb once again began defending the skyjacker. She started giving details of the jump that had not been reported in the news and correcting some of the news that had been reported. We all sat there in silence. Barb was talking with the passion and authority of someone who was actually there. Barb finally noticed she was the only one talking and that everyone was staring at her. She flatly stated, quote, Ron guessed it a few weeks ago. I am D.B. Cooper. We combed Barb's hair back, put sunglasses on her, and took a picture with our Polaroid camera. We placed a picture next to the sketch from the newspaper and watched it develop. We were all shocked to see the remarkable resemblance. Is there a photo of this? For years after, Barb continued to give us details about the jump. Many of these details were not reported in the news until after 2006, when a new investigation was started by FBI agent Larry Carr. They go on to say, quote, the skyjacking was not done for the money. The reasons she gave for the skyjacking were losing a house because of back taxes, not being able to become a commercial pilot due to FAA rules, and not being able to fit into society even after going through the pain and suffering of the gender reassignment. Hmm. She switched back to her male appearance, keeping her wig in a bag and her blouse under her suit, and hijacked the plane. After jumping out, Barbara just had to take off the suit and slip on the wig, and she was nearly unidentifiable. A hospital worker noted that Barbara came in two weeks after the hijacking and seemed strangely unworried about money, despite being unemployed and depressed about it for the last few months. 
the Foremans published a book called, quote, The Legend of D.B. Cooper, Death by Natural Causes. Barbara passed away in 2002 at the age of 76, but a lot of people still believe that she may have been D.B. Cooper. Hmm. And that's actually pretty brilliant to... I feel like, You know, because everybody's going to be looking for a guy. Yeah, but I don't know. I think it's a fascinating theory, but I feel like enough people interacted with the hijacker in very intimate yes like proximity and gender reassignment surgery back then is a, not as sophisticated as you know i think i would know if i were talking to a woman unless they were already could she have taken something to lower her voice i mean i don't know I don't know. I, just, I don't know. I just always thought this was a brilliant idea. I've never to be, heard this. You know, be transgender and to do something like this. And everybody's looking for a male, you mm-hmm. know. So I just thought that was really interesting. There's a lot of people that... Was she a smoker? I believe so. Okay. I believe so. I don't know. I, I just feel like the... the. I don't know. Maybe I, I'm not knowledgeable enough about it, but I feel like the drawings... I feel like a lot of times you can tell... You know, someone who's... Yeah, but if you're not really interacting with a lot of people and you have your wig on and your dress or your blouse, you know... But she was going the other way. She was a woman... No, she started out a... A man. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just got confused. She started out a man and then and then had gender... Reassignment surgery. To be a female. Yes. Okay. So she would have committed this crime as a female, as, technically as a female, but was still, but disguised herself to look like the man she used to be. Okay. That actually makes more sense. It does. Because I'm thinking of things like Adam's apple. In yeah. The, in the drawings, there's yeah, an Adam's apple. but if you don't apple. know, I mean, if you, if, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. Something like that. I don't know. Maybe not. Not, not, not everybody's as observant as yeah. I might be, but I, I guess. Th- I just think it's a really interesting It's an idea theory. I never would have thought yep. of. Another interesting suspect is Dwayne Weber. Dwayne Weber served in the army in World War II, and after the war, he kind of turned to a life of crime. He was in prison from 1945 until 1968, and then, by all accounts, he did not commit any more crimes. He died in 1998, but a few days before he died, on his deathbed, he told his wife, quote, I am Dan Cooper. (laughs) So that's two people who have confessed there's to people. There's a ton of people that have confessed <laughs> uh, to being... Yeah. But yeah, there's been a ton of people that have confessed to being D.B. Cooper. What's, what's I don't know, more legitimate about this one is he did it on his deathbed. Usually yeah. people who truly yep. have done something, yep. they wait till they're just about to die to confess. Yes. Not people who just sit around and tell people at a dinner party. That hey, <laughs> you guessed Well, by that. the way. Yeah. I, I could kind of see her just being sort of obsessed with the case. And that's why she yeah. knew a lot about yep. it and maybe deciding to... But people want their life to mean something, so right. maybe they want people to think that they were. Right. So yeah, on his deathbed, he told his wife, I am Dan Cooper. Did he resemble the sketch? Yeah. Okay, because there are some people, photographs yeah. that were like, why? I mean, they were really, yeah. really yes. similar. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of those. I didn't catch what their names were, of course. So yeah, on his deathbed, he said, I am Dan Cooper. His wife had no idea what this meant, but after he passed away, she went to the local library to see if she could find anything out about Dan Cooper. She ended up being led to a book at the library about the D.B. Cooper mystery. When she opened the book, she was stunned to find writings in the margin of the book that matched her husband's handwriting. Oh, that's weird. Then once she started learning things about D.B. Cooper, she started realizing that it was very possible her husband was telling the truth. 
He loved bourbon and he chain smoked, much like D.B. Cooper on the plane. He had told his wife early in their relationship that he had knee problems from, quote, jumping out of a plane. So, suggesting that they got together shortly after this happened? I believe so. In the late 70s, he and his wife took a trip to Seattle and the Columbia River, during which Weber took a walk alone along the riverbank in the Tina Bar area. What year was this? I don't know, because I have 197 nothing. (laughs) So... (laughs) That's why I said late 70s. Okay. Sometime in the 70s, he and his wife took a trip to Seattle in the Columbia River during which Weber took a walk alone on the riverbank in the Tina Bar area. Four months later, Brian Ingram made his ransom cash discovery in the same exact area. Mm. Dwayne often had nightmares and talked in his sleep, and at least on one occasion, his wife heard him during a nightmare say something about, quote, leaving his fingerprints on the aft stairs. One year, when his wife was going through their tax paperwork, she found an old Northwest Airline ticket paperclip to some documents, but then she never saw the ticket again. She once found a bank bag stuck in a cooler in his truck that resembled the bag that held the money. Okay, this is the guy. (laughs) But they discounted him because his DNA was checked against the DNA on the tie, but it wasn't a match. But I feel like that DNA could have been from anybody. I'm not sure. But yeah. I feel like that DNA could have been from anybody. The thing about ties, and they talked about this on Expedition Unknown, is that dudes wear their ties. Back then, even in the early everybody 70s, wore ties everywhere. it was a suit and tie yeah. era still. Yeah. They wore them everywhere and nobody washed their ties. No. So they were covered in yeah. you know, bacteria and That's probably I just, DNA. I don't and... hold a lot of weight with the DNA stuff on the tie. No. This guy, to me, there are like, way this too guy many sounds like... He's a good fit. He's a good candidate. Yeah. And then there's also Lynn Doyle Cooper. Most of this comes from Marla Cooper, Lynn Doyle Cooper's niece. According to a 2011 story on ABC News, quote, Is Lynn a man or a woman? Man. Okay. According to a 2011 story on ABC News, quote, Marla Cooper says that as an eight-year-old, she recalled her two uncles planning something suspicious at her grandmother's house in Sisters, Oregon, not far from where D.B. Cooper jumped from a plane with the cash one day later. My two uncles, who I only saw at holiday time, were planning something very mischievous. I was watching them using some very expensive walkie-talkies that they had purchased. She went on to say, they left to supposedly go turkey hunting, and Thanksgiving morning I was waiting for them to return. A day later, Northwest Orient Flight 305 was hijacked, and her uncle, Lynn Doyle Cooper, came home with blood on his shirt, claiming to have been in a car accident. What was that? I don't know. Okay. It wasn't your chair or something? No, it was behind me. Okay. Krista's all freaked out. I am. My uncle, Lynn Doyle, was wearing a white t-shirt and he was bloody and bruised and was a mess. I was horrified. I began to cry. My other uncle, who was with Lynn, said, Marla, just shut up and go get your dad. Marla Cooper is now convinced that there was no car accident, but that her uncle was injured crashing to earth in a parachute. She says that she also remembers overhearing a discussion about the money that day. She goes on to say, quote, I heard my uncle say, we did it. Our money problems are over. We hijacked an airplane. It later became clear, however, that there was no money. It's believed that the hijacker lost much of the cash as he came crashing down. Marla Cooper says that her two uncles wanted to return to search for the cash, but her father refused. She believes this was because the FBI search was just beginning to tape shape, tape shape, to take shape. (laughs) After that Thanksgiving, she never saw her uncle again. She was told he died in 1999. According to Marla Cooper, two conversations with her parents initially made her suspicious. The first was in 1995 with her father, just before her father died. She says, quote, 
My father made a comment about his long-lost brother, Uncle Lynn, and said he thought he was still alive but hiding from the FBI. I questioned why he would be hiding, and he said, don't you remember he hijacked that airplane? At the time, she was unable to embrace such an incredible story, but in 2009, it came up again with speaking with her mother. She goes on to say, quote, A couple years ago, my mother made a comment, another comment, a similar comment that she had always suspected that my Uncle Lynn was the real D.B. Cooper. Hmm. She said that her uncle was obsessed with the Canadian comic book hero Dan Cooper and even had one of the comic books thumbtacked to his wall. She added that she thinks her uncle did not expect to survive the hijacking. Hmm. I mean, there's some stuff that Well, then why would you do it? Just to do it, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. But maybe he thought that he could throw that money out and his, you know, because she said he went with like other uncles that Mm -hmm. maybe he could have thrown the money out and they could have got it. If he died, he died. Nobody said he had a walkie-talkie on him. No, but the people down below him, maybe he could have had a walkie-talkie stuffed on him somewhere. In his coat. Yeah, I don't know. His trench coat. But, you know, I mean, there's a couple things that are a fit. Like he was a veteran. He lived very close to Cooper's landing zone, etc., but a lot of this is just based on Marla Cooper's story. And he had the comic book? Yes, he was obsessed with the, the Dan Cooper comic book. Which is a military parachutist. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So that's another interesting suspect. Yeah. Huh. There's too many people who have, you know, really specific connections to it. Yeah. In my mind, I was thinking maybe they just robbed a bank and it went badly. But if they specifically mentioned hijacking a plane... Yeah. Kind of shoots that out of the water. Another suspect that shows up a lot is Richard Floyd McCoy Jr. On the 7th of April in 1972, McCoy boarded United Airlines Flight 855, a Boeing 727 flying from Newark, New Jersey to Los Angeles, California, with 85 passengers, three flight crew, and three cabin crew on board. McCoy escaped the aircraft using a parachute, mimicking the famous hijacking by Dan Cooper just four and a half months earlier. The jump was successful. However, partially due to leaving behind his fingerprints on a magazine he had been reading and his handwriting on a note, the FBI arrested McCoy three days later and was quickly able to prove that he had been the hijacker. But why did he hijack it? Just to practice? For money, I guess. there was money involved? I believe so. Okay. McCoy received a 45-year sentence. Two years later, he escaped from Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary with other prisoners by crashing a garbage truck through the main gate. Tracked down three months later in Virginia Beach, McCoy was killed in a shootout with FBI agents. In 1991, the book D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy came out, Mm. written by parole officer Bernie Rhodes and former FBI agent Russell Kalami. The book stated the case that Richard Floyd McCoy Jr. was D.B. Cooper. A man on the Northwest plane picked out his image of a photo lineup that was an image of the man claiming to be D.B. Cooper, which was the passenger on his plane. The photo was of Richard Floyd McCoy Jr. The man that made the ID had gotten suspicious when he saw Cooper going into the laboratory and changing his appearance mid-flight. He tried to alert people on the slide, but was not believed because he was a convict himself being transported by the airport. The FBI does not consider him a suspect in the Cooper case, though, because of significant mismatches in age and description. Makes it so it doesn't really fit. Mm -hmm. The agent who shot him, though, insisted that he'd done more than kill McCoy. He said, quote, when I shot Richard McCoy, I shot D.B. Cooper at the same time. McCoy, he explained, had done more than just copy what he'd heard in the news. He followed a few of Cooper's steps that weren't made public. So that's one of the reasons why a lot there's a lot about him online. A lot of people do suspect that he was D.B. Cooper. Hmm. It's interesting because he seems like the least 
likely yeah compared to like some of the yeah. other yep and I still I still have such a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that back then you could just give any name and get on a plane. Oh, yeah. They don't even yeah. check your ID. <laughs> it's a different time. They don't look at your suitcases. It was a different time. It's crazy. But the one that you actually see the most about lately is a man named Robert Rackstraw. Robert Rackstraw was always on the radar of the FBI and people working the case, but it was a 2016 four-hour documentary on the History Channel called, quote, D.B. Cooper, Case Closed. By filmmaker Thomas, I don't know if it's Colbert or Colbert. I'm going to call him Colbert. By Thomas Colbert, that really brought attention to Rackstraw. Colbert also wrote the 2016 book called The Last Master Outlaw, based on Rackstraw. He had an interesting life. He was in the military and had paratrooping skills and explosives training. According to a September 12, 2019 article on Newsweek.com called, quote, was Robert Rackstraw D.B. Cooper, mysterious plane hijacking suspect dead at 75. The article says, quote, Dismissed from the Army in 1971 for falsifying his college records and lying about his rank and medals, Rackstraw went on to lead a colorful life. He piloted planes across Iran, was apprehended on suspicion of stealing dynamite, and was charged with the murder of his stepfather before being acquitted by a sympathetic jury. Rackstraw would go on to attempt to fake his own death in 1978 by crashing a rented airplane into Monterey Bay, California, but was found by investigators a few months later and charged with stealing an aircraft and passing bad checks. Oh my goodness. After spending two years in prison, he called news stations claiming to be Cooper, but when confronted by Colbert in the series, denied involvement and said that his previous admission was a stunt. In January 2018, Tom and Don Colbert reported that they had obtained a letter originally written in December 1971 and says that the letter contains codes that they deciphered and matched to three units Rackstraw was a part of while in the Army, and but the FBI refused to acknowledge the findings because they say, quote, it would have to admit that amateur sleuths had cracked the case the Bureau couldn't. Oh, come on. Yeah. The December 11th, 1971 letter to the New York Times said, quote, Sirs, I knew from the start that I wouldn't be caught. I didn't rob Northwest Orient because I thought it would be romantic, heroic, or any of the other euphemisms that seem to attach themselves to situations of high risk. I'm no modern-day Robin Hood. Unfortunately, I do have only 14 months to live. My life has been one of hate, turmoil, hunger, and more hate. This seemed to be the fastest and most profitable way to gain a few fast grains of peace of mind. I don't blame people for hating me for what I've done, nor do I blame anybody for wanting me to be caught and punished, although this can never happen. Here are some, but not all, of the things working against the authorities. I am not a boasting man. I left no fingerprints. I wore a toupee, and I wore putty makeup. They could add or subtract from the composite a hundred times and not come up with an accurate description of me. Hmm. And we both know it. I've come and gone on several airline flights after, and I'm not holed up in some obscure backwoods town. Neither am I a psychopathic killer. As a matter of fact, I've never even received a speeding ticket. Thank you for your attention, D.B. Cooper. A string of numbers at the bottom had some people claiming that it was a code tied in with Rackstraw's military unit numbers, while other letters of this type that were sent to newspapers had words that supposedly encoded the phrase, quote, I am First Lieutenant Robert Rackstraw. <laughs> Rackstraw died on July 9th, 2019. So not that long ago. You know, and he would like... Well, wait, when it, was the letter sent? 71. <laughs> so, well, he had more than 14 months to live then. yeah. So um, that kind of, I don't know. But he would, he was like always really cagey with when people would ask him. Like he would say things like, they say I'm him. If you want to believe that, believe that. So, and this I read, but I 
couldn't really find much looking into this, that some people say that Colbert and the History Channel were discredited by many when it was learned that they had offered Rackstraw $1 million and a movie deal if he confessed if he confessed to the hijacking in their documentary, but he refused the offer. I don't know if that's true or not, but a lot of people believe it was, and that's why people don't think. They think that they wanted him to say he was in order mm-hmm. to sell this documentary in the book. A group I can of, see why he doesn't want anything to do with yeah. it, too. A group of investigators who worked on the case believed that Rackstraw was Cooper and that the FBI knew that he was Cooper, but they hid away any evidence given to them and protected Rackstraw because they didn't want an independent group to solve the case when they couldn't solve it on their own. According to Jim Reese, one of the investigation team's 13 retired FBI agents, quote, rule number one is that you don't embarrass the Bureau. This door slam was politics, pure and simple. Yeah, so I don't know. A lot of people believe that he really was D.B. Cooper. I don't. I feel like you can a see of interviews the other people... with him on YouTube, and you can okay. see like people running up to his window and saying, "Are you D.B. Cooper?" And then he'd say stuff like, "Well, that's what they say," and and stuff like that. You know, and I, I feel just... like the one who's the woman started looking into it after he confessed on his deathbed. You think that's the most? I mean, all of the things that she discovered and remembered around that time yeah. correlate very closely. But again, I mean, all I could find was stuff that she said. So I don't know. But why would she? I don't know. Do that. I don't, I don't know. know. You, some people just want attention too. I don't know. Yeah, like, I, did she actually produce some of this evidence for people? Like the money bag? And... I'm assuming. I'm assuming she did. I don't know. Because she said she yeah. only saw it. And she said that she saw the ticket paperclip to some notes in the tax stuff. But then it disappeared. I mean, I don't was know. Was that before or after he died? That was before he okay. died. Yeah. So, I mean, I really don't know. Mm. You know, and they say that they believe that Cooper wasn't as knowledgeable as they originally thought when they realized that he couldn't tell the fake parachute, parachute. from the real parachute. So I, I just don't know. Uh, but the DB I feel Co- like common sense too. You see four bags. One has a huge X yep. on it. Don't yep. take that one. So now, what do you think? Do you mm. think he died in the fall? Do you think? I don't think so. I feel like he. But I, I feel like I don't realize enough how bad the weather was that yeah. night they said that when they when he the door was open the aft stair door was open the what word am i looking for the airplane <laughs> the, the, usually i can help you out the inside of the airplane quickly dropped to minus seven degrees oh, what, right. when they were up in the air there it was minus yeah. seven and he just had loafers and a suit on i mean a that's trench coat that's right. not really stuff to be wearing when you jump out of an airplane that high during a freezing rainstorm but you also know you're going to be descending pretty quickly yeah to where the temperature is probably a little warmer are you also going to be able to control your descent enough that you can open the parachute and i don't know but like you said too there would be i mean there's people that said they think that his remains are in some little out of the way place or up in a tree or someplace that but then why haven't they found his parachute? Because his parachute should have, should have stood out like a sore thumb right. when they were searching. Although they were green. Yeah. Right? I, I kind of originally thought that he died, but I don't know. I don't know. And like you said, there's truly there's people mystery. that theorize that he went and buried that money on that bank in order to throw people off of where he really had been. And or, that would explain why some of the money was gone. Like mm. he kept $200 out. 
but they also say though. that the deterioration of the money and the fact that the rubber bands were okay they believe that that money had landed in that lake or river that was there and when they were dredging the river they dredged up the money and it, the money got deposited where they found it oh so they think that that money originally could have been in I the mean, water i could see him jumping out of the plane but losing control of the money and the money just flying away and him being mm-hmm. like well that sucks you know so maybe he <laughs> oh, lived snap. maybe he lived and never was able and lost the money maybe he lived and lost the money i don't know I that's mean, an I, interesting point though about the woman who claimed that he confe- her husband confessed that they took a vacation yeah in and that it was very like four spot. months after Yes, and he walked. But the by thing himself. that I don't get with that is that it the money was deteriorated like natural causes, like it had been buried. So I don't think that on that that guy buried that money where the kid found it because it wouldn't have been deteriorated. I think he was unless, looking for it. Uh, I think oh, he knew that he lost it somewhere around there too. and was, took a casual trip with his wife to go see if he could find it. That's true. Maybe he knew it landed there. Yeah. I don't know. Good point. I think there's so many possibilities of what there could are. have happened that there it's are. really hard to narrow it down to what I But the thing I that sucks happened. is that there's people that think that he was waiting out the phrase am I the looking hype. for? No, that he was waiting out when you can't be charged for a crime anymore because it's been oh, too long. Statute of limitations. Yes, thank you. <laughs> that he was waiting out the statute of limitations. It was, was there a statute it was, of limitations? Yeah, there was. Really? But then once once it was getting near the end of the statute of limitations, they basically prosecuted him without him being there so that now, if he comes up now, he can still get arrested for it. That they basically extended. They used some, I can't remember what they called it, but it was prosecuting someone when they're not actually there so that now if they find him, he can be arrested I'm confused though. So what they pro- so they pressed charges, but yeah. they never went through with like an actual no. Trial. But because of what they legally did, there is no there's no statute of limitations. there's no statute of limitations, and they people think that he was waiting with this money until the statute of limitations ended, where he could spend it and be like whatever, right? You know, but then they extended it, so now he was kind of screwed and couldn't spend that money. Hmm. You know, people that don't know. People wonder why. if this money is sitting in a in a right. safe deposit box somewhere. That could explain why it was never used. Yeah. Yeah. So many possibilities. I know. So I don't know. Him I, dying in the crash would also explain why it was never used. Exactly. So. And that's that's one of people's big reasons for, for believing that he died parachuting out of the mm. plane. There's too many suspects that are plausible. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't help. It mucks it up when you have everybody oh and their brother gosh. saying, I was D.B. Cooper <laughs> yeah, on their right. deathbed. I wasn't born yet, you know, so we know it wasn't me. You know, it could be anybody. It could be my dad. Knowing my dad. <laughs> he was at Area 51. <laughs> yeah. I was a year old. and How tall know. is your dad? You're tall. He must yeah, have been tall. He was tall. tall. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. We have to look into this. So I don't know. You need I to ori- dig up some 1970s photos of your dad. I need. I originally thought that he died, but I don't know. My answer is I have no idea what happened. Because yeah. <laughs> I really don't. We're both. I don't think it was a conspiracy by the flight crew. I think there no, was a guy. I think, that, I think that's a given that it wasn't yeah. a conspiracy. I by think the it was crew. a man and he jumped off that yeah. plane. But what happened after that? I, don't I do know. think he was alive. And I just think maybe he did it just to do it and didn't brag about it and just has passed away since then. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But what do you guys think? What do you yeah. guys think happened? Do, do you think that D.B. Cooper lived or do you think that he died jumping out of the plane? He could technically still be alive today, Oh, yeah. He right? could very well. This guy that they thought was him died this year, July okay. 9th, a couple yeah. weeks ago. Jeez. You know? So. Yeah, I love... So there's a coworker of mine. We were, we were at Taste Panel the other day and Sherry is on that panel and she was talking about our podcast and... 
this guy, Colin. Hi, Colin, if you're listening. Hi, Colin. He said, um, so what is your podcast about? And I mentioned a couple of topics. And I said, our next episode is D.B. Cooper. And he said, I'm definitely going to listen because it's totally something I'm into. Awesome. So I'm really curious to hear. Yeah, what, yeah. you know. It, like I said, I was never into this, but it's really interesting. Sherry had never even heard of it. Oh, really? And it's funny Sherry. because her parents were on a plane that was hijacked. So I think yeah. it's really strange. It is that, really strange. That's that the comparison ep- never came up. Yes, that's an episode that will be coming out on Paranormal Palaver possibly strange sessions we'll see how mm-hmm. that works out um her and her sister tell us about the the story but it's yep. really strange that she didn't hear about one of the most famous hijacking cases yep. unsolved mysteries but according to josh clark on the house stuff works website quote the db cooper heist changed american aviation forever Dan Cooper is the reason we began all to walk through metal detectors and why in 1973 airlines were given the power to search passengers' bags before they boarded their flights. Mm. The death penalty was reinstituted for hijacking that same year. And if you look at the rear of any Boeing 727, you will find a white paddle on the plane's exterior. The paddle, which has to be unlatched from the outside, holds the aft staircase locked in place Ah. and prevents it from being lowered midair. They call this paddle a very simple mechanism that arose from a very complicated unsolved mystery, a Cooper vein. Hmm. Every year on the first Saturday after Thanksgiving, you can go to the Ariel store and tavern for the DB Cooper Days Festival and enter a lookalike contest. Oh, funny. Which I think is cool. Yeah, I do too. And I will end this on this 1980 quote about DB Cooper by journalist Daryl Bob Houston, who said, quote, he could be anybody because he was nobody. Ah. That's very true. Because he was so nondescript and, yeah, you know, so he could be anybody. I want to dig through my notes here to see if I missed anything, but I think we So what do you it. guys think? Do you think he lived? Do you think he died? There, I actually, I was telling Krista when we got here, an average printout of our average time episode is eight or nine pages. This is 18 pages. So mm-hmm. I think I have way more suspects than I brought up in this episode and that would be something that might not be bad for a Patreon where we extend the episode yeah. that we're talking about. Because I had, I basically had eight uh, suspects and we I think only we only talked to four three or five. Three or four? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That but would there's be a lot of good suspects and it could be. There's too many suspects. There's too many suspects. <laughs> hmm. So yeah. Yeah, I is, love this case. That is D.B. Cooper. I think it's always going to be a head scratcher. Yeah. I, I This is one that I don't know if I want known. I like the folklore. I mm-hmm. like the, the myth of D.B. Cooper. There's you know. something slightly romantic yep. about it. You know what I mean? And instead of a viewer... Viewer. Instead of a listener <laughs> you question... You say that every week. I know I do. Instead of a listener question, we have a listener story that was sent in by our listener, Dawn. And I have not read it. Oh, so really? So this will be okay. all new to okay. me. This, was, this is a really good story. Dawn sent this to us this week. Dawn says, In the fall of 2000, my daughter, my mini dachshund, and I moved to a comfortable little two-bedroom, one-bath home in a small community within the Sierra foothills of California called Cascade Shores. The elevation was a little higher than I wanted at nearly 3,500 feet, but the rent was reasonable and the owner did not require a long-term lease. I figured I would deal with the, quote, small amount, quote, of snow. I mean, it must snow a little bit there. (laughs) That the owner assured me was that all that residents saw most years. I wasn't thrilled that we lived almost 10 miles from Nevada City, but our little house sat in the middle of a couple-acre lot, was quiet, peaceful, and backed up to the Tahoe National Forest. 
How far the National Forest border was to my house, I have no idea, but I had lived in Nevada most of my life, and nearly all of that was living out in the country, so this felt familiar. It sounds really nice. Mm -hmm. It sounds beautiful. When we initially came to look at the house with the owner, the current tenant, a young woman probably in her early 30s, was still living there and finishing her packing to move. She lived there by herself, and while professing that she loved the area, she wanted to move closer to town. We chatted amicably, although I sensed something strange and nervous in her voice. I assumed it was a result of the nearly finished bottle of wine on her dining room table and the (laughs) fact that I didn't know her. The more we talked, the more she vacillated between telling me how much she didn't want to move and how she, quote, needed to be closer to town. I got the distinct impression that there was something she wasn't telling me, but the owner was there and I thought she might not want to say anything negative. From what I could tell, it was a very nice house without any major issues, so I decided to take it. A couple of weeks later, we had an uneventful move and set about unpacking and making the house our home. I've always been a light sleeper, and I've always had a few wakeful nights after moving into a new house, so this wasn't out of the norm. I totally get that. However, with this house, there was some strange calls echoing in the area near the National Forest, sounds I had never heard before. I grew up on a farm and lived a large portion of my adult life on a farm. I spent plenty of time camping and hiking, and I've heard just about every animal call or scream there is wild or domestic, except this one. During daylight hours, a day or so later, I decided I would walk to the back of the property, the area which bordered the National Forest, and see if I could spot homes behind me. Maybe the border was further out than I thought. There was a little trail that wound from the stairs on my back deck, out about 75 to 150 yards to another freestanding deck and railing at the end of the path, overlooking a huge vast canyon that was very dense and heavily treed with all the pines and brush native to the area. Okay, this is my dream home. I was just going to say, this sounds amazing. (laughs) Wow. I throw a lake in there and I'm in heaven. There were no structures in sight and the forest looked as though it went on forever. That sounds so nice. It does. Even looking into the canyon at dusk, there were no lights, nothing to indicate any of it was developed in any way. The sounds continued often, always at night and in varying degrees of loudness, which I assumed were because whatever was making them was either closer or farther away. I resorted to looking up the more obscure calls or screams of animals that I hadn't heard in a while or ever on the internet. Sounds of mountain lions, foxes, llamas, alpacas, and even predatory birds that are nocturnal. Nothing came close to what I was hearing. I didn't know what to think, but was also hesitant to read too much into it. Maybe it was just someone's animal that had damaged vocal cords. I tried not to think about it too much. Bigfoot. As I mentioned in the beginning, my mini dachshund, Annie, made the move with us. She was the typical dachshund, territorial, protective, fearless, and courageous. Never phased by bigger animals and didn't hesitate to challenge larger dogs. She embodied the small dog complex persona (laughs) and was just a huge dog trapped in a small dog's body. I think that's cute. Mm Mm-hmm. And so true. The nights these sounds were the loudest, Annie would crawl under the bed covers, huddle close to my legs, whining and trembling uncontrollably. I could not calm her. I had never seen this behavior from her before. However, it was the behavior of my neighbor's dog that puzzled and gave me pause. The dog next door was a type of dog you would expect to see on a rural property. He was large and looked like an oversized cross between a lab and a Rottweiler. He had a big bark, showed a lot of teeth, and patrolled his fenced yard like a militia man. Mm-hmm. He was a dog I would never think of crossing. The nights that the unusual sounds wafted up from the canyon, this monster of a mutt was reduced to a puddle, much like my little dachshund. His yipping and whimpering went on as long as the sounds continued. With a flashlight, I could sometimes see him circling his doghouse, tail tucked between his legs and hunched over, frightened and very stressed. Aww. The complete and total opposite of the dog he was during the day. I made a mental note that if I saw the owners outside in their yard, I would let them know how traumatized he seemed by these noises and that maybe they should bring him in at night. 
Well, and are they hearing the noises? That's I what assume, I would yeah. want to know. But I sure couldn't walk through their gate in daylight. <laughs> but I sure couldn't walk through their gate in daylight hours because he'd eat me alive. I also tried to rehearse what I would say. Uh, your dog is as frightened as mine about the crazy screaming that is coming from the forest. <laughs> right. I truly didn't know what I would say without looking like a nutcase. Of course, my daughter heard these sounds as well, and she agreed that they were weird, but figured there had to be a logical cause, which we just hadn't considered. It was when one of her high school friends came over for a sleepover that I truly began to believe we were dealing with something very strange and out of the norm. Saturday morning when the girls woke up, her friend Natalie immediately came into my kitchen and wide-eyed asked, what the hell was that noise last night? What was that screaming? She reminded me that she too lived out in the country, had livestock, and heard nearly every animal sound there was. I looked at her and said, I have no idea. She asked if that was a one-off incident, and I told her no. She promptly decided that she needed to get back home and called her mom to pick her up. We did our best to ignore the nightly screams and certainly didn't want to jump on any, quote, for real paranormal slash cryptid bandwagon. That stuff was just fun to talk about, but in reality, come on, right? Nonetheless, I did keep my skeet shooting shotgun close and made sure I had enough shells just in case. One evening, as my daughter finished her homework in her room, she was startled by a distinct knocking on the outside wall of her room right by where she was sitting. Nope. <laughs> Scared, she flew into my room and yelled, Mom, Mom, someone is knocking on my wall outside. Oh. As I grabbed a flashlight and my empty shotgun, I shoved a few shells in my pocket and ran out the door. I first ran down the side of the house where her room was and then circled the house a couple of times. I fully expected to hear and see laughing teenagers jump in a car and drive away. Had to be a prank, right? She was popular and had lots of friends. High school stuff. There was nothing, just silence. No crickets, no frogs, no barking dogs. In fact, I wondered, why is the neighbor dog barking? Kids fooling around should definitely have set him off. I shined my flashlight into their yard, and of course, not having fresh batteries, the beam wasn't very strong. It looked like their dog was just sitting in his doghouse with his back to the opening, but I couldn't be sure. I eventually reasoned they must have just brought him in for the night since it had been getting colder. It's weird that he was sitting in the doghouse facing away. Dogs from, are weird, though. Yeah. They do weird stuff. <laughs> when the snow finally flew in our area, the small amount must have tripled on the way down because I needed chains to get out of my driveway for a few weeks. The road my house was on was a very steep grade. I was at the bottom, and once it snowed, it was impossible to get up it at all or down it safely. Fortunately, there was an alternate road back to town, albeit a bit longer. However, the steep grade of snow and ice did not deter the brave, dim-witted drivers that apparently didn't read the signs that it was treacherous and that they should use the alternate route. Sounds like Wisconsin. Uh One weekend, I sat at my front window and watched the show, car after car attempting to descend the grade, ending up off the shoulder and in the ditch. This went on all day, and while I felt bad for these drivers, I also thought they got what they deserved for not heeding the warning. That was until an elderly lady also tried to get down the hill and ended up flipping her car at the bottom. Now we needed an ambulance. The neighbors across the road, a young family with young kids, came out to see what could be done to help the lady. I also walked the road, and after the initial commotion, soon began talking to the young neighbor mom who had her baby on her hip. I eventually asked her how long she had lived there. She responded that they'd been there several years. I'm thinking she said eight years, but I can't remember for sure. Feeling like she was a longtime local, I worked up the courage to ask her, quote, Have you ever heard strange screams in the woods at night? At this point, I didn't care if I looked like a fool or not. I needed someone to confirm or deny what I was hearing. She got a serious look on her face and said, quote, yes, we hear it all the time. She then asked me, quote, have they knocked on your house yet? <gasps> no. Oh, my God. I am covered in goosebumps right now. 
A cold, my hair is literally standing on end. <laughs> a cold chill ran down my back because I had said nothing about the knocking. I told her, quote, yes, that's happened. My daughter's room. How did you know? I continued and I said, quote, and what do you mean they? What are they exactly? What are making these sounds? She proceeded to tell me that no one knew what was making the sounds, scaring the dogs and knocking on house walls. However, everyone in the area had experienced it. She said it's a known thing in this part of the country. Although no one really wanted to talk about it, everybody knew about it. She said that there were people that theorized it was Bigfoot or Sasquatch, but no one would ever say that out loud. She seemed somewhat matter-of-fact about it, and I asked her if it scared her. She said they were used to it and just made sure not to go outside after dark. I wasn't able to jump on board with this nonchalant attitude. Everything inside me screamed, this is not okay. Why don't they bring their dog in then? I don't know. I'm curious to know, were they hearing more than one thing screaming at a time? I'm assuming it was the same scream. So only one one I believe so. I decided to move. Which Good call. sucks because it's, I don't know, <laughs> it, it sounds, sounds amazing, like a nice but place, but I, I think... I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't live there. Yeah. When she asked, have they knocked on your house yet? I'm done. <laughs> have been Krista's and I'm packing Packing now. up her stuff. <laughs> exactly. I decided to move. The snow, the distance from town, the noises, and now the neighbors' seeming acceptance of whatever it was made the decision easy for me. I soon located an apartment in town, gave my notice, and began packing. In addition to packing, I finally decided to brave the internet and looked up the supposed Bigfoot sounds. I didn't believe such a thing existed, but I wanted to see what cockamamie BS was out there just in case there might be a sliver of truth in it. To say I was stunned at what I found would be an understatement. The recordings I found online were nothing short of identical to what I was hearing. I could not believe it. These recordings were older, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere in the 70s, way before a digital age of smartphones, YouTubes, and handheld recording devices. I know which calls she's talking mm-hmm. about. Because they were the same sounds, I didn't doubt their authenticity. I now believed what I was hearing was the real thing. Was it actually a Sasquatch or Bigfoot? It's hard to say for certain, but it was a real thing. It was either the day before or the morning we loaded the U-Haul, and for whatever reason, I decided to walk down the little trail in the backyard to the deck overlooking the canyon, much like I had done many times before. I can't remember if I ever made it to the deck, because as I got partway down the trail, I noticed crisscross sticks in the trail. They did not look like random sticks that were laying there that might have fallen from the trees because they were uniform in length and spanned the width of the trail. It looks as though they were put there purposefully and deliberately. The below diagram is a good description of what I saw. And she had like a little diagram made of these sticks. (laughs) It's almost like a a primitive burglar alarm. Yeah. Krista's just shaking her head at this. Krista doesn't like it. The knocking is what's getting me there wasn't just one pile but at least two maybe three this really spooked me and i felt that creepy strange energy like something or someone was watching me i remember thinking that i didn't want my daughter out here because it didn't feel safe i had been out in the yard many times with my dog and I had never seen anything like this in the tray on the trail it was disturbing to see the first pile of sticks to be about 30 yards from the house way way too close It was also unusually quiet, no sounds, but I wanted to look around and see if there might be any footprints, even though there was a layer of pine needles. I did find a couple of depressions, though not distinct, near the base at one of the larger pine trees. They were huge, a third again, as long and half, again, as wide as my foot. I wear a size 9. 
I don't know if I was reading more into this than there was, but there were definitely depressions in the ground, the strange display of sticks, and the beyond creepy feeling. I took it as a sign that I wasn't supposed to go any further. I had to force myself to calmly walk back to the house. Oh no, I would have ran. Because the the strange thought, quote, if I run, I'm going to get chased, crossed my my mind. Crazy, right? I'm now even more convinced I made the right decision to move. Having listened to a few dozen podcasts recently about Bigfoot slash Sasquatch and how many times they are attracted to people with young girls in the family, I realized my daughter was 16 at the time and it was on her wall that the knocking was heard. I had put this out of my mind for a very long time, but now that I hear it in other stories, I thought I would actually put words and document the story in its entirety. I have no idea what I heard back then and never actually saw a creature or animal that could have made these sounds. I do believe that the woods, like the oceans, are homes to things that we are not familiar with. I think it's entirely possible that something lives in the woods that is not entirely animal nor entirely human. An unknown earthly species, perhaps? An interdimensional species? An alien species? I don't have a clue. All I know is that the forest may not be what they seem and may not be as safe as I once believed. Incidentally, the Cascade Shores house is only about a mile or so from Scott's Flat Reservoir, the one that was pictured with a UFO sucking water into the sky. Mm. Here's a link to the story, and I saw that. I saw that, yeah. I was again living near a forest, El Dorado National Forest. My house is among other houses on the two 10-acre parcels and is not nearly as remote as the one in Cascade Shores. I've had a bear knock over my garbage can more than a few times, and I have a small herd of black-tailed deer that are frequently on the property. One birthed her fawn on the back hill. I see dozens of turkeys daily and a couple fat little squirrels. I've never seen a raccoon, an opossum, skunk, or porcupine. That seems odd to me. People say they've caught the rare glimpse of a mountain lion, which are supposed to be in this area, but the small animals, not so much, and I wonder why. I've had neighbors tell me, don't ever have an outside cat because they won't survive. Hmm, weird. I still have dachshunds, a brother and sister duo now. They have a six-foot wrought iron fenced yard right off the house and a doggy and a doggy dog. I'm thinking doggy door? Yeah, probably. <laughs> because I would never feel they were safe with anything less. I don't hear the strange screams in this area, so I'm hoping because it's more populated. All in all, I love living in the foothills somewhat near the forest, but not super close. Do I hike in the forest anymore? No. Do I want to camp in the forest anymore? No. Am I cautious and aware? As much as I can be. Because whatever it is that's living in that woods, it's their domain, their habitat, and maybe we don't belong there. Hmm. So, wow. (laughs) Krista's... I never want to go in the woods again. Krista's kind of looking stunned and out of it. (sighs) Well, of course, I think Bigfoot. I mean... Yeah. Is it possible there's some crazy old man living in the woods who's gone too long without human interaction that he's, you know, acting more like an animal? Sure. But... I just feel like yeah. this reeks, yeah. pun intended, of Bigfoot. But the moment when the neighbor said, has it knocked oh, on Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I, I just got the chills again. Just the <laughs> idea of like, oh, this is normal. Yeah. That's not normal. No, it's That not. is really scary. Thank you so much Ugh. for that story, Don. I don't that like is... when people knock on my front door. <laughs> <laughs> much less the wall. Oh, my God. Wall. Thank you so much for that story, yeah, Don. That is awesome. Really creepy. And now I think it's time for the deets. Okay. Yeah. Give her. Oh, pickle joke. Okay, how do cucumbers go on strike? How? They form pickle lines. Oh, instead of picket instead of picket, lines? Instead of picket lines? <laughs> okay, should I do another one? Yeah. Who said, I never met a pickle I didn't like? Um, who? Dill Rogers. <laughs> Is this supposed to be like Bill picture, Rogers? It's supposed to be Will Rogers. Oh, Will, Will Rogers, Rogers said, I never met a man I didn't like. Oh, okay, well. Thanks for those jokes. <laughs> 
Oh, and thank you to Jim. Yes, thank you to Jim Alec Alec for, for our postcard. postcard. It says, I might be skeptical about the supernatural, but I'm not skeptical about Kurt and Krista. Love the 411 missing, he says. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. It's cute. Yes, thank you. So our deets, email thestrangesessions at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at Strange Session. Don't the S. Krista does a good job on Instagram at the Strange Sessions, and you can send us postcards, taste test items, and mail to the Strange Sessions, P.O. Box 434, Manitowoc, Wisconsin 54221-0434, and you can always call the Strange Sessions hotline and leave a message at 920-443-9602. That's such a Wisconsin thing to say 920. I know. I know. <laughs> we do Don't a, dial a O. It's a zero, yeah, but that's what we do. It's always 920. Yeah. We totally. do a lot of Wisconsin things. We do. We're, we're Wisconsinites. So, so I think okay. that's it. Let yeah. us know what you guys think about D.B. Cooper. If you are D.B. Cooper, come on the show. Hit we'll interview up. you. Yeah. We'll give you a sticker and a pickle joke. We'll do one of those voice like scramblers, yeah, scramblers or whatever. Those we'll, voice scramblers, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, from Krista and I from the Old School Media Studio, until next time, stay stay strange. strange. This has been an Old School Media production, executive produced by Kirk Konechny. For more information and content, please visit strangesessions.com.